So we are in Mark. We're traveling through it. I hope you're realizing how brilliant this book is, that Mark does some unique things. His book is concentrated. It's short. It's fast. So he doesn't spoon feed you. He trusts that you're going to kind of think and digest and allow things to expand. And so he doesn't give it to you, but he embeds things in his message. And he does it by two really interesting ways. The first is called the Markian sandwich. It's a mark of Mark, where he tells a story about something, does another story about something else, and then comes back to that original thought. It's a Markian sandwich. We've seen those. And the second thing he does is this, that I love, is he pairs things together. So he doesn't give you the answer, but the answer is there in the pairing of the two stories. So tell one story, and then right after it, he'll tell another story, and you can link them together, and you get the answer. So today we have a pairing that is, it's of the utmost importance. It's a story about a rich young ruler and about a child's wealth. Two brilliant stories. Let's jump in Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 17 with a rich young ruler. And as he was setting out on his journey, Jesus is making his way south from way up north, up by Caesarea Philippi. It's his last road trip with his disciples. It's going to end in Jerusalem on the cross. As he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go, sell all that you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. This story is found in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And we find that he is rich He's young, and he's a ruler. Aren't those the things that we idolize today? Wealth, youth, and fame. He's a ruler. He would be known, right? Those are what we worship today. Fame. In this survey they did of high schoolers a couple years ago, they asked high schoolers, what do you want to be when you grow up? Number one today, guess what it is? Famous. I want to be famous. It's the same survey they've given now going back to the 1960s. In the 1960s, fame didn't even make the list. It wasn't even the top 10. It wasn't even on there. And today now it's number one. And it didn't matter, like, I want to be famous for this. It didn't matter. I just want to be famous. Didn't matter what you were famous for as long as you're famous. 
because there are a lot of celebrities today that are famous and I have no idea why they're famous. Why is that person famous? Right? I don't want to pick on a celebrity. Actually, I do, but I won't. Right? You're just like, what in the world? Because fame now is worshiped. He's famous. He's a ruler. He'd be well known. He's young. Don't we idolize youth now? Like the worst thing that can happen to a person is you can grow old. How bad is that? I'm almost 50. Like, oh no. I have this research paper that was given to me. It's from the Hartford, with an F, Religious Research Institute. And they asked churches, if you're looking for a new senior pastor, what are the qualifications that you want? Top two. Number one, be funny. Number two, be under 40. I'm like, well, I'm done. No one wants me. I've aged out. Go dig a six-foot hole and just push me in it because that's all I'm good for now, fertilizer. Right? One pastor put it like this when it comes to youth. He said, here's the deal. People keep making movies like Girls Gone Wild. No one's making a movie called Grandma's Gone Wild. It just doesn't happen. Sorry, grandmas. I didn't say this. I'm just repeating, right? Because we idolize youth. What's the demographic that advertisers target? 18 to 34. That's it. Everything is now targeted to that group of people because that's what we worship. So he's got it. He's young. He's famous. And he's got money. Great possessions. He's the Patrick Mahomes of his day. He's the Tom Holland of his day. He's the Justin Bieber. He's the Taylor Swift. He's whatever. Whoever your celebrity is, he's it. He's got everything we think a person could want. And yet, what is he doing? Verse 17. Jesus, I'm missing something. Jesus, what else do I need to do? Jesus, I've ticked all the boxes that say, hey, this should make you happy, but I'm not. Jesus, what must I do? right? Like I repeat this all the time because it's always in the Bible. The rich young ruler feels it. You and I don't because we haven't reached his level, right? Like he has sucked the marrow out of life. He's done everything that what culture has told him. This will make you happy. He's checked it all to a level you and I can't imagine. And he's like, we don't feel it. Because for the average person, we always have what I call witty syndrome. When I, then I. When I finally am rich, when I'm finally famous, when I stay young, then I. So we always have it. And so we think that once I get that, it always strings us along. He'd already got it all. And he found that's not it. You guys know who Russell Brand is? Here's a picture of him. Nice eyes. Creepy. Sorry. Right? He's a rich young ruler. Right? He's got it. He's made it. He's famous. He's well known. He's got tons of money. Benny's fall out of his pocket. He's got it. Right? But he is searching. If you've read some of the stuff, he's searching for something. So he did a uh, video about two weeks ago that just kind of went viral. And the title of the video is this. Billionaires are miserable. And for 11 minutes, he just rants on about how money actually makes people miserable. 
I watched it for 11 minutes and I was just like, well, please make me miserable. I'll take it. To cross all bear, give me the billion, all right? But he's right. And yet we demand things of God all the time. We're like, I just want this. If I could just have that, if I just had wealth, I'd be happy. Be careful of demanding things from God because you know what? He might give it to you. Read Psalm 106, verse 15. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. It says this. He gave them their requests, but sent leanness into their soul. God's like, okay, you're gonna keep demanding this? You're gonna keep requiring? Okay, fine. Here you go, have it. They got everything they wanted, but nothing they needed, and their souls were lean. Don't we do that? I wanna, God, give me a beautiful woman for a wife, or I'm gonna die. God, give me that job and that amount of money, or I'm gonna, give me that house, give me that career, whatever it is, right? We do this all the time. And I think God sometimes just says, all right, you can have it. Have everything that you request, but your soul is gonna run lean because you put all your hope in that thing, believing that if I just had this thing, I would be happy, and it doesn't. So then we want something else, right? Give me a different career. That one's sucking the life out of me. Give me a different career, right? Give me a different woman. She's spending all my money. I want a different woman, right? So we do. And I think God just says, okay, you can have it because he's showing us something. He's showing you and I the capacity of the human soul. It's too great. And all that stuff, doesn't matter what it is, your capacity is too great. So that tension in life, this rich young ruler feels it. That tension in life, I think, led Henry David Thoreau, that famous philosopher from almost 200 years ago, to say this. He said, most people live quiet lives of desperation. Because ah, ah. we're constantly thinking, if I just had more, fill in the blank, whatever our blank is, then I'd be happy. This is the rich young ruler. It's the same predicament he's in. But he's got more and more and more, and he's done. This isn't gonna do it. There's gotta be some other way. Forrest Gump, in that movie, over and over, he said, what, life is like a box of, you just don't know what you're gonna get. I have my own saying. I say, life is like a bunch of celery. The more you eat it, the hungrier you get, Right? because it takes more calories to digest celery than you get. The more you consume of life, just the bigger your capacity gets, right? Just keeps growing and growing and growing. The hungrier you get, that's all it does. It demonstrates how big our appetite is. So what's the solution? Well, the rich young ruler has his solution. Verse 20. Teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth. I have performed well. I'm a moral good guy. That's been his route. I'm a good dude. I'm a moral guy. I've had mission, right? You notice that? And I've said this before. As people that are really wealthy, as they get old, they almost always go to mission. They've, they've done it. They've been successful. They've got tons of money now. So then it's like, okay, I want to save people. I want to come up with this medical cure. I want to stop sex trafficking in Thailand. I want to, whatever it is, right? They almost always move toward mission because they realize that didn't do it. 
So what does Jesus do with morality? He meets him with morality. Please know this about Jesus. Jesus meets people and whatever they're bringing to him. The Canaanite woman met her exactly where she was at. The centurion met him exactly where he's at. Read the parable of the talents. The master, Jesus, gives gifts to these servants. Two of the servants say, he's a good, generous master. I'm gonna take these talents and make more. And they do. And when the master comes back, he rewards them even greater with more generosity. Keep everything you made and rule over 10 cities. Jesus is more generous and good to them. But there was one guy, one guy that thought Jesus was a hard taskmaster, stingy, scroogey. So he took his talent and he buried it in the ground. How does Jesus respond to him? In goodness and generosity? Nope. As a stingy Scrooge. Jesus literally says, if you saw me this way, that's how I'm gonna respond to you now. Take what he thinks he has away from him and give it to the one with 10 and this guy's going to the outer darkness. How you view Jesus really matters. It's why we are dedicated to just teaching the Bible because you need to know the Jesus of the scripture, not the Jesus of culture or the Jesus you want it to be. You want the real Jesus, the good, generous, awesome Jesus. So here, you wanna do morals? Jesus says, okay, let's do morals. You haven't murdered. You treated people well. Good. You haven't committed adultery. You treated women good. Excellent. You haven't lied, defrauded. You, you've done business good. Great. You've honored your mom and your dad. Great. You've treated your family well. You, you haven't stolen. Great. You've treated possessions well, right? I personally believe Jesus was going to keep going. He was on f- number six of 613. He had a bunch more to hit. But this rich young ruler, what does he do? I think he interrupts Jesus. Isn't that what rich, powerful people do? I don't have time for this, Jesus. I don't have time for your 607. I don't don't need that. I'm rich. I'm powerful. I'm used to getting my way. Knock it off with that rabbi stuff. Just tell me. Just give it to me straight. He's interrupting them. Or it could be that he interrupts because he didn't want Jesus to get to number 10, which is thou shall not covet, which is actually his problem. And sometimes when you talk to people and you start to get close to what is actually their precious, the moment you start to break into that realm, they interrupt you and throw a smoke screen up. So this guy's like, hey, hey, I don't have time for this. Stop it. I've done all this. He's done it all, but he still grinds his teeth at night. He's done it all and he still wakes up with angst in his heart. He's done it all and he's like, what do I lack? Because mission and morals don't get you where you wanna go. Do you know that? Mission and morals, doing good deeds and and having morality, they'll both pat you on the back and then they'll beat you over the head. Do you know that? Uh, Let's look at morality. Everybody has something in their heart that they hold on to and they say, because of this one thing, I'm unique. I'm not as bad as those people, right? This is a conversation everybody has. I'm not as bad as Hitler. Congratulations, you have not slaughtered six million Jews. Oh man, bravo, right? 
And it, it transcends class, it transcends socioeconomic backgrounds, it transcends it all. Like I learned this firsthand. We took this gal's kids as foster parents and we were trying to help this gal get ahead. And she's in bad straits. So we, we go to the court appointments with her and we're at this court appointment with her and the judge gives her this like, here's all the charges against you. And then the, we are all given the same thing. Like this is what she's facing right now. And it was like 50 pages thick. So like, hey, we'll take 10 minutes and look through it. So we're like, you're just looking, wow, oh my goodness, wow, okay, right? So after 10 minutes, the judge looks at her and says, hey, is there, you'd like to make any comments on that packet just given to you? She's like, yes, I would. Page 12, paragraph three says, I am an intravenous drug user. She goes, I am not an intravenous drug user. I have snorted meth. I have eaten meth. I have smoked meth, but I have never injected meth. I am not one of those intravenous drug users. And the rest of us were like, yeah, okay. And the other 49 pages are what, right? That we all hold on to. I'm not as bad as them. Okay, what about the other 49 pages? How about the fact that you're headed to prison probably and you're losing your kids? No, I'm moral. And we all do that. Some reason that makes us good people but we ignore the other 49 pages against us. How about mission? Does mission do it? Well, if mission is the solution, when there's angst, what do you need more of? More mission. Now, you can always do more, right? Everyone can always do more. Mission will beat you down. Best example of this is Schindler's List. Oscar Schindler, if you haven't seen the movie, it's brilliant. True story of a man that saves about 1,127 Jews from Auschwitz ovens. Amazing story, right? Like awesome. But what's the final scene in that movie? It's Oscar Schindler, the hero, looking at a gold pin on his lapel saying, I should have sold this. I could have saved one more Jew because you can always do more. Instead of celebrating the hero, it's you can always do more. Mission will beat you down. Morals will beat you down. Five's not good enough, if, right? If morals is the way to eternal life, then what happens when you're not getting it? More morals until finally it breaks you. It breaks you. So this man here, this man here is facing it. He's being honest about it. So this is what Jesus does. Look at verse 21. This is the money verse. And Jesus looking at him, loved him. Celebrities can be all messed up. And we can read their stories and scoff at them and make fun of them. But please know this, Jesus loves them. He loved this man. And he said to him, you lack one thing, go Sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. His solution is out of a deep love for this man. It's not to get an advantage. Jesus does not say, hey, go sell all your stuff, your miserable possessions and give me the money. No, give it to the poor. There's no advantage to Jesus. Give it away, and then you come and you follow me. Jesus didn't want the money. He wanted the man. 
And right now that man was being possessed by his possessions. They owned him. And so Jesus is trying to set him free from those things that were destroying him. Sell it all, give it away, and follow me. Sometimes money can be a bummer. I've mentioned this book a bunch. It's called Self and Soul, written by this, he's a Virginia professor, not a Christian. He was just looking at, you know, there's something intrinsic about people that's bigger than just being selfish. Like there's a soul aspect to people. And he gives this illustration about this journalist that went and looked up this category of people that were just like this rich young ruler. People that had net worths of $100 million, like massive amounts of money. And at some point in life, they gave all of it away. They didn't keep a little bit in a savings account somewhere as backup. They got rid of all their money and they moved to a third world country and lived like a peasant. That's a very unique class of people. So this journalist went and looked them up. There's lists of them actually. And he, and he interviewed all of them to try to find out what's the deal with you. And he said this, and I found this fascinating. He said, there was one mark that united this group of people together when I was with them. And it was this, they laughed a lot. What would you pay to laugh a lot? A lot of people paid a lot of money to laugh a lot. Jesus isn't trying to take something from this guy. He's trying to say, bro, I want you to have life. I want you to laugh a lot. I want you to love things, right? That's what he's saying. Now, please notice this. This is not a universal command that every Christian needs to sell all their stuff. Jesus says it to one guy because this one guy, his possessions possessed him. Some people can have money, it's not a problem. They're generous and they're kind. He doesn't own them. They can take it or leave it. They're like Paul, right? I've learned to be content. Rich or poor, it doesn't matter to me. Right, so they got that. This guy was not that guy. And so Jesus' instruction to him is, look out, this thing owns you. We all have something that owns us. It may not be money. It might be sex. It might be your looks. It might be your physique. It might be your reputation. It might be fame. I don't know what it is, but we all have something that owns us. So this is tailor fit to this man. This is what is going to hurt you, but the man can't let it go. How will do it. And he leaves sorrowful. I can't do it. So Jesus uses this moment as an opportunity to teach, to warn us on the danger of wealth. Keep reading. Verse 23. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them, children, how difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. A warning about wealth. It's a big problem, a camel-sized problem. Now, maybe if you've been in church a while, you've heard about this thing called the camel gate. Where if somebody came to Jerusalem late and they had a camel, there was this short little gate and they'd have to get their camel down on its knees, essentially, and have that camel shuffle through the gate. And that's what Jesus is referring to. It was called threading the eye of the needle. Have you heard of that? Okay. It's called the lie of the needle. Because I was in Jerusalem for a seminary class. We spent a week 
studying the wall of Jerusalem, walking around it like every day, seven times. I felt like Jericho. I'm like, come on, how many times were you gonna do this? And we studied every single gate, what they were used for, what their purpose was, and there is no such thing as a camel gate, period. Nothing. If you want to get a camel through the eye of the needle, there's only one way. It's with a blender, okay? And when you make this about shuffling through a gate, make it hard, it ruins what Jesus is actually saying. Because he's not saying it's hard, he's saying it's impossible. Not hard, impossible. You cannot do it. Because the problem is deeper. The problem is a capacity problem. The problem is a human problem. Do you know your capacity as a human? It's Ecclesiastes 3.11. It says that God has put eternity in man's heart. How big is eternity? Really, really big. And what humans do, though, is we understand our capacity, and then we start trying to stuff stuff in that hole, whatever, whatever is our deal, trinkets or people or whatever, right? Money. And we try to keep stuffing it in there. And all that that reveals is this. As we stuff stuff in there, it constantly just reveals that, man... We have a really big capacity and the inadequacy of stuff to fill its hole, okay? And the easiest one is money, is it not? Let me ask this question. Who here has enough money? Raise your hand, because I'd love to talk to you after service. <laughs> Most of us, 99.99% of us would say, I could use just a little bit more money. Pay off that debt fix the car, fix the roof, pay my driver. We can all use just a little bit more money. But if we think about history, America, 2022, we are the 1% of world history. We live like ancient kings. All that's happened is our capacity has grown. We can use more and more and more and more and more stuff. And the problem with that worldview is this. When we begin to look for our eternal life, for life, for abundance, for laughter, for all the things that we want, all the intrinsic, when we begin to look at stuff or people, people or circumstances for our happiness, when we're unhappy, who do we blame? Do we say, oh, this must be a me problem? No, what do we say? It must be the people or the circumstances around me that are causing my unhappiness. So I better change them. So I talked to men with angst in their heart, like this rich young ruler. They got everything they want. Trophy wife, great career, second house, coast, everything they could possibly want. They're like, I don't know why I'm not happy. So it must be, I need a different wife. It must be, I need a different career. It must be, I need different friends. My friends are such losers. If I had better friends, I'd be happy. It must be my parents blew it somewhere. They should have hugged me more, right? There's all these ways that then we say, it's not a me problem. It's the people and circumstances around me. So then we just blame and project on everything else. But it's not. It's not that. You and I were created with a capacity that's so huge. We were created, Genesis 1, to rule and reign over planet earth with Jesus. That's a massive capacity, is it not? And since then, Genesis 3 happens, fracture happens, breakage happens, and we know we have this great capacity, 
but we're unable to fulfill it. It's why the end of the story is what? You and me ruling and reigning over the cosmos with King Jesus. We finally step into our actual capacity, right? So what's the way forward? Look at verse 26. And they were exceedingly astonished, like, ha! And they said to him, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Did Jesus ever talk about salvation? Some theologians want to argue he didn't. Yeah, right here. The disciples know what's going on. They know the context of the conversation. They understand what's actually being talked about. And they say, then who can be saved? And Jesus says, with man, it's impossible. Every one of us should have that underlined in our Bible. You can't save yourself. You can't be good enough. Right in high school, I thought it was real simple to be saved. If I just didn't cuss, if I didn't drink, I didn't have sex, I'm saved. The Holy Trinity of high school, like those are the bad three, right? Didn't matter if I was cruel or lying or gossiping or doing dishonoring things about my, towards my parents. That didn't matter. It's just the big three. And you can't. With man, it is impossible. You can't buy your way in. You can't talk your way in. You can't work your way in. You can't nice your way in. You can't sneak in because the problem is not your performance. The problem is your brokenness. So performance is never gonna get it. You and I are broken. The very fact that the man asked, verse 17, what must I do? Tells me he missed it. With man, it is impossible. And because he won't receive the cure, verse 22, he walks away sad. This is a you problem, bro. You need to follow me. You know, let go of this thing that's an anchor to you and follow me. But he wouldn't do it. It's like holding on to a coal, getting burned by it, but saving it because you think it might keep you warm later. Bro, you're getting burned up right now. And what is Jesus actually asking this guy to do? Blow up your life for me, right? Everything that you've worked to be a ruler, to be famous, to have money, to have power, I'm asking you to get rid of everything that is life for you. Blow up your life and follow me, a homeless rabbi that right now is headed down to Jerusalem to die. That's called blowing up your life. Because Christianity is not an addition to somebody's life. It's just like an appendix. Christianity is your life. It wants all of you, not part of you. Jesus says, I want all of you, 100%, period. The gospel demands more than you could ever pay, requires more than you could ever possibly earn, but gives you back more eternal rewards. So here's what they go on to say. So these guys freak out. And Peter just says, okay, you're asking him to blow up his life. Well, we've already done that for you. Peter began to say, see, we have left everything and followed you. We did what you asked. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brother 
or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Blow it up. Blow it up for me. Den Vidlak on Wednesday night said it like this. He said, following Jesus will cost you, but not following him will cost you way more. That's what Jesus is saying. And there's a price, but not following him will cost you more. And right now, Jesus says, you're gonna get repaid. If you leave that stuff, it's not the, just the eternal life thing, not just out there in heaven, but you're gonna get repaid today, in this time, a hundredfold. Have you found that in the body? Man, I have. So if you don't know my story, I grew up without a dad. My dad had issues. On his honeymoon to my mom, he pulled out a knife and stuck it to her throat and said he was gonna kill her. Right? He had serious problems. So he is not part of my life at all. Never, never had a dad. But my mom got me involved in church, got us involved in church. And because of that, guess what? I had a whole bunch of dads. A whole bunch of them. Terry Meyer would always get a group of us together and we'd go camping just on a whim. Like, amazing guy. In his giant 1970 station wagon. And we'd go out like to the Illinois River. And one time we went like wintertime and it rained or snowed on us. And then we ended up in a ditch doing a 360 into a ditch. It was the best camping trip ever. Yeah, we wrecked. How cool is that? He's like, dang, wow. Dave Corson over in Vanuatu, an incredible mentor. Jim Wright in the School of Ministry, what a great mentor. Mark Scudstad, I lived in his house for a year. Brilliant man. It's where I got the nickname, Matt Matt, the basement rat. And I wear it with pride. I can go on and on and on. What happened? I got a hundredfold. I did a whole thing last year at this time called Good Question. And the last one was, why bother with church? And I just gave tangible ways that you can measure how being involved in church repays you in this life. This gave tons of, not, not just all the intangibles, these are measurables in family, in happiness, and all those things. You can go get it if you want. It's on our website. In this Life, you will be blessed. Well, Matt, I still don't know how to get saved. Mark doesn't spoon feed you. Right, he doesn't. So it's not selling everything and giving it away. It's not moralism, it's not mission. How do I get saved? It's the first story. It's this pairing. Back up to verse 13. This is why the disciples knew this is a conversation about salvation. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. What brilliant men these are, aren't they? Goodness. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the little children, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them for such belongs the kingdom of God. 
Truly I say to you, this is Jesus's way of saying, pay attention. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. You cannot purchase eternal life with your performance, but you can accept it like a child. That's the point. That's why these two stories are back to back. You can't purchase your salvation with anything, any kind of performance, but you can receive it like a child. You ever given a gift to a child? How do they receive it? You ever given something to a child and have a child say, you know, you really shouldn't have. No, dad, this is too expensive. Oh, no, no, let me pay part. Have you ever had a child do that? No, what are they? They have the gift of receiving. Hey, thanks. All right, let's go play with it. They receive gifts the way we're supposed to receive salvation. Not stepping our way into moralism. Not seven steps of salvation. We always want to justify why we deserve to be saved. You don't. You're broken. That's why Jesus, God in the flesh, had to die. And so we then just receive grace graciously. For salvation is not of works. It's a gift, a free gift from Jesus to you and me. And we don't frustrate grace by trying to earn it. Thank you for giving this to me. Receive it like a child. For some reason, people have been telling me like in the last couple of months, you need to write a book. You need to write a book about this stuff. Like you're, you're amazing or whatever. And I just, this is what I tell them now. I say, uh, here's the book I'd write. I am a moron, but God is good and generous. That's the book I'd write. Because that's what I found. Like the more I understand of his gracious goodness and his the goodness and mercy chasing me down my whole life, the more I just say, I am such a mourner and you are so good. That's childlike faith. That's how we get saved. Oh, and when you get saved that way, it motivates you then to follow Jesus. How can I not follow someone that's so good? How can I not pursue him? Oh, I'll give everything up for him because he is that good. That's what happens to you. You're transformed into the kind of people that Jesus wants to spend eternity with when we get grace. And I know this. On a Sunday morning, there are people that come to church because they think, like the rich young ruler, I just added a check on my list. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. And if that's the way you treat church and that's the way you treat God, you're gonna leave here sorrowful. You're not saved by your performance. You're saved by his grace alone, that you receive it like a child does. Thank you. I know who I am. Thank you. That's it. If you're here today and you've been checklist morality, believing that somehow your performance will earn you, punch your ticket to eternity, change your mind. Believe in the free gift of salvation. 
If you have questions on that, after the service, there'll be people up here that would love to pray with you and talk with you about what it actually means to trust Jesus like a child and to receive his free gift of salvation. You lay your deadly doing down at Jesus's feet and find yourself in him 100% complete. That's what you do. That's salvation. That's why these two stories are paired and it's brilliant. So as we go to the table today, as we partake in him, here's what I would ask. That you remember what it cost him to give you, to give me the free gift of salvation. Everything. So Jesus today, grace was not cheap. It is the most expensive gem in the universe. And yet you give it to us freely. I pray that we would be a people that do not frustrate your grace, but receive it like children. Let's eat together. Pray as we drink. I pray that you would give us eyes that are able to see clearly the world we live in. Eyes that can see clearly the lies of our culture. Eyes that can see clearly the capacity of the human soul. eyes that can see clearly the futility that comes from making anything our God except for you. That our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. May we drink of rest for our souls today. Let's drink together. Amen. So we have prayer. Come up. Whatever you need prayer for, get prayed for. We have baptisms. Baptism does not save you. You're not working through baptisms to get saved. Saved people get baptized because they're obeying their king. And he says, be baptized. So if today is your day where you're saying, I want to obey my Savior and King and be baptized, we welcome you to come up. Someone will be right over here. They'd love to chat with you and tell you what it means to be baptized. Would you stand for this final song?